I'm Ruth Frenger, founder of Conscious Leaders. Now this podcast aims to change the world of work one honest conversation at a time. I hope you enjoy these conversations with proven people leaders running highly successful businesses and I hope you gain something from their philosophy and practice. Now I've learned so much coaching, facilitating as well as interviewing leaders that I had to digest their top traits and behaviours into a book. It's called Next Level Leadership, Nine Lessons from Conscious Leaders. To order your copy, visit consciousleaders.org.uk forward slash book. You can also subscribe to my bi-weekly newsletter where I share free content, including practical tools to support leaders to do their best work. On this episode, I'm pleased to introduce you to Renee Watson. She's founder of Watson Consulting and The Curiosity Box. She's a fun and creative entrepreneur and just a joy to be around. I started by asking her just how she got to where she is now. I'll try and make it concise because it's been a fairly wandering, kind of windy road from rural Australia, rural New South Wales, where I was born. And I spent most of the first half of my life with just my mum and I. And we used to go on lots of adventures outside and loved exploring nature. And I think really that's where my love of science started because I wanted to understand more about the world and how it worked and people and things in it. Um, and I just, I still find that to be such a massively interesting, fascinating and inspiring place to be and thing to do. Uh, so science sort of became a theme in my life very, very early. And I went through phases of wanting to be a dancer, wanting to be, you know, all kinds of different things, but science was kind of the North Star that was there the whole time that kind of kept my direction. And so I, I did through school and uni, uh, did a biochemistry molecular biology degree and specialized in sort of human biomedical sciences. But I think I knew fairly early on that I wasn't really cut out for life in the lab. So I decided to go traveling for a bit and went backpacking through the US, ended up in the UK in London as so many Aussies do, with not very much money or anyone I knew or anything really to my name, um, but decided to do a kind of that, there was a two year working visa thing, so I was gonna work for a bit and travel for a bit and then go back to Australia. Um, It was a pretty interesting time because I really didn't have very much at all and trying to land on my feet in London was hard, really difficult. Um, I ended up just copying my CV and sending it to every retail shop in Covent Garden and I got a job in a camping shop which was great fun and actually helped me to build my kind of network of friends and support fairly quickly so that was great uh, though that job didn't last very long because I got offered a job in a temping but through a temping agency to work in what became the National Patient Safety Agency so science kind of quickly reared its head again and became part of my life and my boss there was an amazing woman called Kirsten Knox, who uh, I, st- I still admire massively. She's one of the greatest mentors I've, I've had. And I worked with her for some time before she got offered a job to set up what became the National Cancer Research Network here in Oxford. And she asked if I wanted to come up and work with her up here, which is how I landed in Oxford nearly 20 years ago now. Uh, and I'm still here. <laughs> I still not quite sure how that happened but you know life takes over (laughs) and you take opportunities when they come 
Uh, so I worked for the University of Oxford looking at how we could get more cancer treatments into the clinic more quickly for about six years before I had my first child. And at that point, the funding pot for that project was coming to an end at about the same time as my maternity leave was coming to an end. So I was ramming and ahhing about what to do. And I thought, well, you know, through that work, I'd built up a really big network of people doing lots of interesting things. And I had increasingly been doing public outreach and public engagement in science and patient engagement specifically with cancer research as well. And I loved that. I loved the fact that I could help to bring lots and lots of different people with different interests together and help them to talk to each other and understand something about the complexity of that science or the complexity of the challenge and to work together to think of solutions for how we could you know, make progress. Uh, so I thought I'll just put an email out to some people and see if anyone wants me to do some freelancing sort of help. Uh, which I did and that was I got a, a overwhelming response from people and that was at a time when public engagement in science and outreach was still something that there were no jobs it wasn't a funded sort of position there certainly are now but it wasn't then so I think there was a real need and at the time people didn't know how to how to solve that problem so I kind of filled a gap I guess and then within the year, I had more work than I could deal with on my own. So I started my first company. And I only did that because it seemed like the quickest and easiest way to have be starting to have the impact that I wanted to have, which was to really start to think about how we brought people and the public and science closer together, how we got more people involved in science and how we made science more accessible to as many people as possible. And I guess everything I've done since then has sort of been building on that. So that original company is called What's On and it's still going. We work with lots of scientific organizations and help them to grow and to look more outwardly into the community. And then about five years ago through What's On, we had been thinking a little bit about what we wanted to do in future, what direction we were gonna take the business. And one of the things that came up was that we really wanted to get more kids having opportunities to have fun with science and get the hands-on experiences of science that, you know, maybe we got in our, when we were kids through chemistry sets and potion making kits and that kind of thing, but that were, have been progressively stripped out of the school curriculum for many years now. So a lot of kids just don't get that chance. And Curiosity Box, which is my second business, was born out of that. And that since then, since 2016, when we launched, has taken most of my time. Uh, I did have a, another child in there, so I have two children uh, somewhere in there. And I think, you know, being my own boss has enabled me to have a lot of flexibility around that so that I can, you know, have feel like I'm doing a half decent job of being a mum and, and, you know a career woman so and up to today both of those businesses are, are kind of going going pretty well we've had lots and ups lots of ups and downs over the last couple of years uh, but I set myself a mission when we started Curiosity Box of reaching a million children and giving them a wonder-filled experience of science and we're just under a million. We should reach that in the next 12 months. Mm. Well, congratulations Thank for you. getting that far. It's amazing. And you did, um, I don't want to brush over the like two kids thing that you mentioned there. Um, is there anything you want to say about that? Because it it sounds like you had young kids while building 
to your businesses? Yes. I think it's really important to say that I was in a very fortunate position in that I was financially able to take that risk because I have a husband who was earning enough money that I could... I've never not earned money, but I was able to take a much smaller salary than perhaps, you know, Mm. I might have been otherwise. So, you know, I think it's really important not to play down the fact that I have had a very good support network in place to enable that to happen. I think I probably would have done it anyway, just because it feels like that's where my life would have taken me regardless. Uh, And I have certainly been in my life in situations where I haven't had that kind of financial or physical or emotional support network and I know how to survive that kind of situation which I guess gives you a lot of strength that's a great reservoir of strength to draw on Mm. when times get tough Uh, but I think it is really important to acknowledge that so we were able to get for example when the children were it's sort of in upper primary school we were able to get an au pair that helped with driving them around to the million and one different clubs and things that they needed to go to, uh, that has helped me kind of keep sane and be able to to survive through what is a, a massively complex and very exhausting juggle. Mm. Yeah. And what's what's the toughest stuff that you have been through, would you say? What's what's been hard? Uh so twenty nineteen was probably the hardest year of my life. So we had actually, so before COVID, uh, I had had a year which was a kind of a a heady combination of a teenage child who was having some serious mental health issues and um, was really not doing well to the point of threatening suicide. Uh, At the same time as a business that had sort of gotten to that sticky stage between startup and scale up where it was a constant battle with our cash flow. Um, we, were, we were growing, but we were growing more slowly than perhaps we expected. Uh, and I don't, I've never done this because I wanted to make a lot of money. So having to focus so much on, you know, whether we were going to run out of money and every penny that we had to pay, uh, I find that just like soul destroying. It just feels like a siphon has been stuck in my soul and all the energy and everything is being sucked out. Uh, I've also, I've got a small team that I absolutely adore. And when you are wondering about whether you're going to be able to pay people at the end of the month and you know them and you know their personal circumstances and everything like that, there's a huge amount of stress, stress to carry. So by September of 2019, I was burning out uh, I really wasn't in a very good way at all. I remember I had this moment where I was on my daughter's football pitch sideline and uh, I I was the lines person and the referee had disagreed with something I said and I completely lost the plot. I lost it. And I remember coming away from that thinking, who am I? This is just not who, like, it's not who I am. And a good friend of mine who is also a therapist uh, took me aside and said, I, I don't think you're okay. I think you need to go and get, you know, talk to someone and get some help. Thank God for her because that then enabled me to start thinking about, sort of put my nose above the water just enough that I could see that I really wasn't doing okay and to start getting 
the right sort of support and help and putting in place a recovery program for myself that enabled me to kind of get back on top of things. Uh, so that was that was sort of personally for me definitely the hardest thing and there were a huge number of external factors partly business partly family that you know took me to that point mm. yeah it sounds like a really really intense period it was yeah it was pretty awful I didn't enjoy it at all but you know again I think human beings have a an amazing capacity for for survival for bouncing back and I'm a real believer in those things happening I'm not going to say for a reason because I think that's a can be a slightly flippant and damaging way of looking at things but I do feel like the things I learned through that process have helped me to grow into a version of myself you know I'm I'm now in my mid-40s and I think being a woman particularly there's all kinds of interesting things that happen to you when you go through certain different stages of life and some of the things that I learned about myself there I think have really helped me to think about the kind of person that I want to be as I go into this next phase of my life when you know through menopause and out the other end and how I want to spend this part of my life. And it's always moving the conversation into to leadership because you know you mentioned in that, that period and you can also talk about other periods of highs and lows um how and also having to protect, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like you're thinking about their salaries, you're thinking about the general cash flow and and, and probably carrying quite a lot of responsibility there. Like how much are you sharing with your team when times are really tough? Uh, so I think this is actually one of the things that has enabled me to keep going is that I have 100% transparency approach to the way I deal with things, particularly financial things in my team. So they, um, and I remember the first time when we first were looking at hitting a tight period, I was really nervous about, I didn't want people to get nervous about what that might mean for them. So uh, I kind of held back for a bit, but then I thought, you know what, I've built this environment where our relationships are properly built on trust. And it doesn't feel, it feels less right for me to be not sharing that with them than trying to protect them from it. Uh, so we've, I've always been very open about where we're at. And it's been really interesting actually, because people I think are very open about what that means for them. And it's enabled us to have conversations that would absolutely never have been possible. And for people to be able to engage in the business in a different way. So I think it gives them a, a much greater sense of understanding of the role and the value that they contribute to the business. Plus it gives them a much better feeling of ownership, of, of shared ownership, because we have a collective responsibility to be successful and to make sure that we're getting to a place where everyone gets what they need. And you mentioned sort of conversations. Don't even give me any detail because I'm, I'm sort of imagining this, um, this period where like you're looking at the bank account, you're looking at the wage bill, and what do, you, what do you say to them when you're like, okay, right, we need to have a transparent conversation? I think the, the important thing is it doesn't come out of the blue. So the way that I sort of manage my team, uh, and I used the word earlier collective responsibility, and that's very much the way I, I sort of even thinking about managing the team doesn't quite feel right because 
it does feel much more collective than that. But mm. uh, the structure that I use to support the team kind of enabled that conversation to happen much more easily. So we have an annual one-to-one where I go through what I call the value equation with each of my team members. And so this is a, we usually take about one to two hours with each person where I sit down and I go through the the three components of the value equation, which are money, how much they want to and need to be earning. Uh, The second thing is time and how they're spending their time now compared to how they want to be spending their time. And then the third thing is what's important to them. And that tends to be a discussion that goes beyond what's important to them in the workplace. So it's it's a kind of a coaching session really where we look at where they are in their life and how they're spending their time. And then it's a sort of reciprocal, uh, sort of mutually beneficial thing of then how can the business support them to feel like they're living the life that they wanna be leading and how can they contribute to the business being successful and that then becomes a synergistic kind of relationship. So by the time I'm coming to the point of having a conversation to say, look, our cash flow is really tight, I've already got a really clear understanding of where they're at financially, uh, what matters to them within that bigger picture, sort of beyond money. Uh, And because we've had some of those quite, sometimes quite personal conversations, it means that that very practical, this is where we're at right at this moment conversation is much easier because the context is already there. Mm. So just to play that back to you, so check it's right so you're having a conversation about how much they're earning how they're spending their time and it sounds like a more like their purpose or like what they enjoy doing yeah and I have a little tool that I use for each one of those things so the um the first the money and time thing are fairly straightforward but for the how they what's important to them and how they're spending their time more broadly uh is I do just like a bullseye and I have I get them to limit to the center of the bullseye. They have to put a maximum of five things in there that are the things they cannot live without. So the things that normally go in there are things like family and um, holiday or, I, you know, it, it will vary from person to person, but there will be something in there that fundamentally comes down to recharging themselves and human connection. Those are the two things that tend to be the themes of the things in the middle. Then the second layer of the bullseye, they get 15 things, which are things that they, that are really important to them, that make them feel like they're, feel satisfied, feel happy and content. Some of those things might be things they used to do, but don't do anymore. Some of them might be things they've never done before, but have always sort of dreamed that one day they might. And some of them might be things that they already carve out and protect time for. quite general, quite specific by this point? I force them to be very, very specific. I, I say I force them. I nurture and encourage them along to getting to a point where they're fairly specific because what we do, what goes into the value equation is I get them to pick three things that they're going to commit to and be accountable for doing more of by the next time we check in. So there'll be three very clear measurable objectives that come from those what's important things so i'm getting a bit of a flavor for your leadership philosophy here without actually asking the direct question so it sounds like you're somebody who is looking at the whole person and what they want in their life work everything to see how you can support them broadly and is looking at how you can build connection between people between you and them 
and sort of values our human connection. Yeah, I think it's one of the things I'm most proud of is that we've created a workplace where people love to come and work. Uh, during COVID, a lot of my employees are mums. And during COVID, I had people coming into work because they just needed to get out of the house. And it was like their respite. And, you know, I've had people ask our staff about what they think of it and how what they like about it. And I mean, somebody without any influence from me said it was like a little slice of utopia. And I just think, you know, I've got that on the website somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not sure we do. But I'm so proud of that because I I wouldn't want to go and spend all that time in a place where I felt like I was sort of still at school and that I was being talked down to, and there was a very serious power dynamic where. I felt like I had no autonomy and I couldn't be innovative and all of that sort of thing. So I'm not going to create that for someone else. Mm. And it, and in terms of how you've built that, like we talked specifically there about the those annual work you're doing, but what else really helps build that connection? Yeah, so we have a very flat structure, and some of the we some of the ways we do that are, and I mean this often comes down to just day-to-day how people work and the, and the behaviour that you model. So I am very much a open person. So people come and talk to me. They've got ideas. I will always listen. Love ideas. Uh, if there are problems, I'll be here to listen. And I try and approach the relationships I have with my team in a very uh, non-judgmental way so that people do genuinely feel safe to come and talk to me about stuff. Uh, I also approach or try and and properly get that flat structure by getting rid of old school names for things. So we don't have any C's. Uh, we have, you know, I'm I'm the head of explosions. We have a head of happiness. We have a production professor and everything engineer, a head of storytelling. You know, I think words matter. And the fact that we have job titles that, A, are more on brand because we're all about the fun, but B, give people room to be able to shape and mould and own that that role themselves. I think that creates a a proper environment for a more collective approach to, to working. Conversations I have regularly with coaching clients, and I think one of the biggest challenges for a lot of leaders is letting go and letting people fly sounds like that's kind of one of your superpowers yeah I don't have a problem with that at all I don't know where that comes from uh necessarily but I think I'm really conscious I'm very aware of what my strengths and weaknesses are and what my limitations are and I have absolutely no desire to be wasting my energy doing things that I'm not good at uh or that I don't enjoy so within that context, I think it's very easy to see. I know, I know the shape of the puzzle that I need to create and I know the pieces that I occupy in it. And there are all these other spaces that could be filled in all kinds of different ways. And so when you open that up and let people create their own size pieces, you just get something that I think is much richer and more interesting than if I tried to control everything. I'd actually really hate that. I, I'd even the thought of it like makes me kind of Mm. cringe because 
I just don't, I don't want to be spending my time micromanaging an adult. Mm. And I think it causes a lot of pressure and stress for everyone in the system of that, the person who's been micromanaged. And of course, this is a spectrum, right? Yeah, and people absolutely. oscillate in yeah. terms of the way they manage. But, it, you know, at, in extreme cases, it's, it's stressful for the person who's experiencing it. It's probably stressful for the person who is doing the micromanaging as well, because they probably do not have time to be yeah. right in that detail. But yeah, it's like, um, I always feel like it's a magnetic draw. And I'm guilty of it at times, for sure. Like, it's, it, it feels like it must be the right way to do things because you want things done a certain way. However, it's never the way to grow something sustainable because you can't be all over everything anyway, even if you did want to behave like that. No, and I kind of think you have to, if you're, if you're feeling like that's what you're doing, you need to ask yourself why. You need to ask yourself why you feel the need for things to be a certain way or for, for, the, for there to be no space for anyone else to have any influence in that. Because that to me feels suffocating. To, like, to me is the person who would be controlling that. Uh, and I think that if you want it, you cannot do that at the same time as saying, I've got great relationship with my staff and I, we trust each other. And Because actually that for me is a really fundamental part of trust is that you enable people to be able to grow themselves. You mm. create the environment, they grow themselves. It's not about you molding and shaping them into a certain size to fit what you want. It's about being fluid enough that you can do the other way around. And is there anything else you want to say about the way you lead or anything that, you know, about the business, your approach? I think most of the things, I, I, I feel very passionately about being a leader who is, who shares that leadership and who brings people together and who gives them the best opportunity to be the kind of person that they want to be. I feel really, really strongly about that. So most of what I think has probably already been said. Um, I do think that it's really important as leaders for us to be as aware as we can be about everything we bring with us into that role. So thinking about racism, it's really dramatic. Doing that work has dramatically changed the way that I show up. In a, in, a, in a room with people that I know, with people I don't know. Uh, it's helped me to, it's, it's, it's really fascinating to see how much that has changed the kind of interactions I have and the people I interact with. In what way? Well, so for example, uh, and, and this is really interesting because it's, it's totally not backed up by any scientific evidence, but I go into a room I went to an awards ceremony in London at the end of last year and I go into a room with a with a different heart, a different feeling, a different awareness of myself, my white body in that space. Uh, and that means that whereas before I probably would have, without thinking about it and potentially without anyone else thinking about it, ended up in a circle talking with people who were predominantly white. That has almost completely shifted. And I now very often in this particular awards ceremony was a great example. I, I think I maybe spoke to one white person the entire evening. And it just makes the, and that's not intentional. It's not like I've gone and sought out. It's just that the, the movement of people has shifted and the kind of, I, d I don't, 
I'm still, this is a lifelong journey, right? So you can hear me not quite being able to articulate this. And that's because there's still a lot of this that I really don't understand. And I'm still learning so much. But I think the way that you, the awareness that you bring into yourself and your body and, and how you then position yourself in, in the situations with other people really does change the interactions that you have. Mm. I've had conversations with this actually from an intentional perspective. So Hefsey Pemberton, who's CEO of the Equality Group, not doesn't live too far from here actually in Oxfordshire, um, did a, um, I can't, I'm trying to remember what the stimulus was, but read something about doing an audit of like your, your inner circle of the people you rely the most on and realised they were all like women, white women in their mid-30s like her. So she actively went and found different people and then it actually came their advisory board. Hmm. So, and and because she realised that just hanging out with people of the same colour, same age, same gender was probably a bad idea in terms of different ideas, different perspectives, different... So it's interesting that you're doing it in a sort of non-intentional way because I guess it can be happening. From... I do do definitely do intentional stuff as well. Mm. But sometimes, you know, when you're sort of nervous and walking into a room of a load of people you don't know, it's not necessarily the first thing on my mind, I guess, is mm. that I'm going to intentionally go and find myself a, a black friend today. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's not like that. Uh, though I do think that um, there is uh, one of the things that, the, the coach that helped me, her name's Charmaine, she does this absolutely ridiculously amazing racism course called Racism in Real Time. And it is about the felt experience of racism in your body. So you spend a lot of time thinking about how different things make you feel and where that shows up in you. And it's incredibly powerful. Anyway, she's great and I can give you the contact details for her if you want to. Mm, sounds very mindful. It is really, really um, transformational. It's absolutely extraordinary course she runs. Uh, but one of the things that she said very, very early on, which sticks, her voice comes, pops up in my head all of the time with this line, which is, what do I lose? What have I lost or what do I lose? So I think about that situation, which was the same for me. You know, I look around and most of my friends, well, West Oxfordshire is not exactly, you know, diversity central. Most of my friends are middle-aged white women. And I stop and I think now, you know, what do I lose because of that? What am I missing out on? And so much of, there is so much that we lose by putting up barriers around ourselves because we're afraid of things we don't fully understand. Mm. Wow, this is a whole other podcast. I, that we're, we're I can to... talk about this for so yeah, long. Yeah, maybe it will be worth a revisit for sure. Um, yeah, I'd be really interested in, in that lady who did the coaching with you because I feel like that, that, I mean, that for me talks to very active self-development that you're doing. And kind of to round up is, I mean, you did, uh, you did mention some things you do to look after yourself, but is there anything that you, you know, you feel that is really important in your week, your day that supports yeah. you as a leader? Yeah, definitely. So uh, I mentioned right at the beginning that getting out in nature has always been a big part of my life. Uh, during COVID, I became slightly obsessed with fungi. So uh, one <laughs> the of the science brain. Well, yeah, mm. and they're just, they're beautiful and mm. they're small. And actually one of the things I struggle with is slowing down and you cannot find fungi if you go fast. You have to slow down. So I always make time every week and there are fungi around all year, not just in autumn, uh, to get out into the woods, into the wild and slow down and look for things and just take time to 
you know that old take time to smell the roses well i take time to smell the fungi um and it's that that really is an essential part of my sort of mental health and well-being the other thing that i do is i play touch rugby uh, I play, I coach, I referee, I do all kinds of things with that. And that physical exercise is an absolute must. I broke my ankle at the beginning of this year and couldn't do anything for six, about six months. And it was just awful. I become grumpy and miserable and yeah, not mm. good. And you got some big championship. Are you allowed to talk about that? Big, yes. Yeah. yeah, I've just been appointed as the head coach for the first England women's 40s team, which is going to be going to the European Championships in 2023 and the World Cup in 2024. So in terms of transferable leadership skills, it's going to be a really interesting experiment and an interesting test for me. Uh, and I do yoga. That's the other thing that I kind of, those are the three pillars of my week that I have to have in place to release, so to fungi, clear my head. Fungi, football, football. well, rugby. Rugby and, and uh, yoga, yeah. Renee, what a great conversation to have with you. I do feel that Renee is one of the most progressive leaders I've met. Her ability to trust people, give away control and really help others shape the business means she's role modeling exactly what it is to be a modern leader. You've been listening to the Conscious Leaders Podcast and I'm Ruth Franker. I want to facilitate honest conversations with great people leaders so you can learn from their highs and lows and from their philosophy as well as their day-to-day practices. For free practical advice on how to build a calm, collaborative and productive workplace, as well as info on my number one best-selling book, Next Level Leadership, visit consciousleaders.org.uk.